0: Hello. Good day. It's Charlie. Uh, this is the podcast to hell and back. And uh, I think it's the 28th of November. Four o'clock in Massachusetts, United States of America, North America. And uh, we're going to continue today talking about emotions. And I'm going to start with a song. I just wrote it. So please be kind. <laughs> it's a song about an emotion. I was in Napoli, Italy, on the day of Christmas Eve. The streets were filled with joy, but all I could do was grieve. I said, self, Self, what is wrong with you? You're in such an amazing place. You ought to be happy. Wipe that big frown off your face. But my sadness, it went on and on. It dragged my spirits down. But I kept on fighting to put a smile on top of my frown the more that i tried to smile the more i frowned instead i called my dbt coach and this is the word she said she said charlie grief's not the kind of thing you can bury deep in the ground I'll let it come into the sun and invite it to hang around so i let my sadness manifest and i let my sadness be i let it arise and to my surprise my sadness set me free i walked around all over town it was a beautiful place to be The sadness let go, next thing I know, joy came into me. Sadness let go, next thing I know, joy came into me. All right, everybody. This is a continuation of the last two podcasts about uh, how to regulate emotions. Um, using the models uh, in dbt and in particular in DBT's skills training manual by Marshall Linehan and um, isn't it just true I mean just an, a huge a huge incalculably huge part of life is coming to grips with emotions oh, they are in us they go on they never stop they're a little bit like it would be to have a, a fish reflect on water, to have us reflect on emotions. Uh and yet if we do reflect on emotions and we do have an objective understanding of some things about emotions, and have ideas about what to look for, what to hang on to, what to grab onto, where to enter into the complex matter of having an emotion, then it gives a lot more possible ideas. For what to do to change our emotions or to change our relationship with our emotions and so that's the point of these skills uh, and uh, so let me get moving into some of this um, I'm going to be picking up where I left off in the last podcast so I think this is podcast number 36 so if you looked back at podcast number 35 I got to a certain place Uh, I discussed a number of things and uh, now I'm going to pick up where I left off so first briefly summarize just where I was you know I'm about to explain something that is actually um, when one teaches it in DBT is one of the hardest things to teach Uh, so I'm going to be trying to walk you through this in a way that makes it very understandable um, and sort of breaking it up uh, to deconstruct it, to understand it, because actually when you look at it in DBT, you're looking at a certain handout. Uh, specifically, if you looked up in the manual, it's handout number five in emotion regulation training. And it's this big, boxy handout with a ton of information on it. Uh, it takes a while just to take it in and it's strange that it's that way because actually it's a model of an emotion and emotion is actually something that happens so instantaneously and so fast and met much of it out of awareness <clears throat> that to have it depicted as this big boxy thing with a lot of ingredients is uh, kind of weird uh, and I think makes it even harder to get how useful this this uh this box is this set of boxes is so i'm walking you through it because what it is is the basic idea is that an emotion is uh way beyond just a feeling i mean if you feel sadness as i did in the song um, there's way more going on than just i feel sad uh there's things going on in the brain there's things going on all through the body hormonally autonomic nervous system probably every single tissue in the body for all we know there may be important things going on in the uh, trillions of microorganisms in our gastrointestinal tract that's been a recent focus of more and more research called the microbiome and it's really part of us um, and influential in so many things there's just lots of things. Uh, when I break it down, it's about it, there's li- a list of about 16 or 17 types of ingredients of an emotion. So obviously an emotion is a big multi-component response of the organism to something, to something that sets it off. Um, and it happens every uh, few minutes of our lives probably, often just subtly. Uh, sometimes big and loud Uh, so let's look at the model ingredient by ingredient I've already gone over some of the things that lead up to the actual emotional response itself so just in summary again there are uh, uh, a variety of factors that are called uh, vulnerability factors things that make you vulnerable to being more emotional having to do with just you know, your regulation of yourself, your sleep, your eating, your exercise, physical uh being, taking care of illness, using substances or not, uh nutrition, um, the pace of life, uh the amount you're trying to do, the kinds of stressors you're encountering. So you enter into a given moment uh more or less vulnerable, uh or to come at it from the other angle, more or less resilient to uh, an emotional trigger of some kind and then comes an emotional trigger or what we're more calling here a prompting event an event that prompts a e- uh, response um, and so we talked about uh, about that and we uh, uh, talked about uh, then being aware of the prompting event, which is a, a step in itself, a le, your level of awareness and level of attention. For instance, if you were out of it, let's say you were heavily intoxicated, um, or even mildly intoxicated, your awareness and attention in response, in, in paying attention to a certain event, is going to be different. So that's another factor. There are fact, there are vulnerability factors that you can do something about if you're trying to change your relationship to your emotions. There are prompting events that you can try to do something about. You can avoid them. You can modify them sometimes in various ways. Uh, you can now pay attention or increase your awareness or decrease your awareness of a prompting event or pay attention to certain parts of a prompting event and not part not others then I also talked about the fact that once there is a prompting event and we're aware of it, there's an interpretation of the prompting event. There's there's thoughts that go on in our mind. Um, and those thoughts take a certain shape, often based on our previous history, of course. Um, and And so those thoughts have a big influence on the shaping of our emotion and what kind of emotion gets triggered. And then we get to the part of the model that is the emotional response itself. Okay, so vulnerability factors in which there's a prompting event that sets off emotions. Then there's an awareness of the prompting event. And then there's the interpretation of the prompting event. And all of these things are happening automatically. You don't need to spell them out. They just happen. I was just coming down the street on my way to my house to to do this today. And I, I don't remember what I was feeling before, what kind of emotions were underway but um then there was a uh a fire an ambulance as part of the fire department that comes up with its siren going behind me and i pull over uh everybody's pulling over and the and it goes by and uh i think and it's going pretty fast and i and it set off thoughts in me of oh my god i wonder what's happening i wonder if somebody's hurt i wonder if somebody's having a heart attack i wonder if what's going on and so i had a kind of a mixture of emotions going on at that point of concern um and then i started to pull back into traffic and the person behind me took the took advantage of the moment of this uh, ambulance going by to zoom up ahead and cut off some other traffic including me and suddenly there was another prompting event so i wasn't done dealing with the previous prompting event this prompting event comes by, and next thing you know, I'm feeling pissed off. It's like, who is this guy? I mean, this is what a jerk to be doing this. So I immediately had a judgment, an interpretation uh, to the prompting event, and uh, then I was riding with that for a, a little bit until that sort of faded. None of these lasted very long. And the, one of the points I'm going to get back to is that uh, at its best, In the way you might say maybe emotions are intended or what they're good for, they come and they go. And they accomplish something. They usually reorient our attention to something. They bring us some information of some kind. They may communicate information to other people who see us being emotional in our bodies or our faces, uh, so there's all these functions of emotions and I talked about the functions of emotions last time primarily categorizing them as either the function of uh, communicating emotions to other people uh, instantaneously much faster than speech uh, communicating emotions to uh, communicating information to ourselves they bring information about what's going on uh, and they underline information they jazz up information uh and they motivate and activate us to do stuff um, and then uh, so so those are three large categories uh of function so these are again kind of um, weaving back into what i talked about last time getting ready to move forward but you realize once you name vulnerability factors prompting events uh awareness or attention and interpretation or interpretations And now you're getting the emotional response. There's already a bunch of things you can do to alter your future relationship with your emotions or how you handle them. Sometimes it's possible. Sometimes it's not. It depends partly on the intensity of the emotion, how fast it comes, how terrible it is, or how positive it is. Um, So now we're at the emotional response. Um, To go into this, let me tell you a little story. Um, This is a story of a of a young, uh, man, actually a te- uh, late teenage, uh, guy who was in a uh, program, a day treatment program once that I was in. And I was, uh, not his therapist, but I did, I uh, was his, uh, psychiatric doctor. I wrote for medications for him. And also we hung out together. I, I mean, in, informal way, we would talk. I enjoyed him. We both loved basketball and we would Talk about basketball. Sometimes we'd go take some shots outside at the, at there was a, uh, a hoop there. And this kid came from New York City. He had been a good basketball player actually in high, in high school. Uh, he was quite neglected by his family and his community, and he tended to be kind of like a street kid, like a street urchin. He knew where every gym was in, ta- in, in his area and when it was open, and he knew the janitors that could let him in to, to play some basketball. He knew where the courts were that people were playing, and that, that's what his life, and he went to high school. And most of the time he went, and wasn't a bad student, but mostly what was getting him through high school was the basketball team, he was playing on the team. He was a point guard on the basketball team. He was a good player. And it's kind of what he invested most of his energy and his emotional energy into was this. Uh, and he really loved the basketball coach, which is a young guy, uh, who was enthusiastic and was really, you know, t- took this guy under his wing. It was almost like a, like a father figure for him. So, um, it turned out that uh, one day, at the high school basketball practice, uh, the coach, uh, had a heart attack and died right there, uh, with all the players around him, including this guy, uh, call us, call him Chris. And, uh, so Chris, um, was devastated, devastated. It felt like to him like everything was lost. And over the coming weeks, he dropped out of school. And he became suicidal and he tried to end his life a couple times and he ended up in psychiatric hospitals just which had never happened to him before he had never been to a psychiatrist before and um, and after a couple of hospitalizations he was referred to my program which was a specialty program for people you know that were suicidal and had severe problems with emotion regulation and he um, ended up going through our inpatient program and then is in our day program so now we come up to the day of the prompting event you've heard some of the vulnerability factors there's other vulnerability factors he drank a ton of caffeine this guy was always carrying a gigantic like 64 ounce bottle of coke or other caffeinated drinks around and um, and he was always kind of wired anyway even without the coke and he would be very uh, wired that and he was often physiologically very tired as well and he wouldn't sleep very well not a big surprise but and then here's what happened um, I had decided and my wife and I that we were going to move from that place which was in White Plains New York up to Western Massachusetts where we live now and so this is twenty two years ago and uh, I came into a meeting in the day program, and they called all of the patients together, 35 patients in a big circle, and some of the staff who already knew what I was going to say. I was going to announce that I'd be leaving in three months. And the head of the day program, the person I, she and I developed the program together, uh, she said, uh, Charlie has an announcement to make. And when she said that, this young man ran out of the room. He put his hands over his ears. And he ran out of the room yelling like loud because he did not want to hear whatever was coming he ran down the hall and then he engaged in a behavior that he had used sometimes to try to dull his emotions which was he sat on the in the hallway and banged his head against the wall and was was really loud like wailing a couple of his friends came out of the uh, meeting to go down and comfort him and uh, and so he ran out and he he did that so Obviously, we're at the point in this one that uh, vulnerability factors were there. A prompting event happened. Okay, what's the prompting event? Was probably um, my friend Cindy saying Charlie has an announcement to make. That was enough to set off alarm bells in this uh, boy and uh, and it turned out in retrospect when we were able to go over this and do a, a, a careful look at what had happened was he had instantaneously and without really thinking about it made an assumption that either that either an announcement was going to be made that I had a medical condition I was going to die or else that I was going to be leaving right away for good and e- either way it was the end of his relationship with me so those were obviously uh his immediate interpretation and his interpretation also was and i cannot tolerate it i will not be able to go through this i already went through this with my coach and um so there was that um, and then he and then he had uh uh and then the emotion was in him right so we get to a point where these are the precursors of the actual emotion, but they shape the emotion. And uh, and all of a sudden, the emotion is, is in him, and he acts on it immediately. So now we're going to return to the model, and then we'll return to this story again. Because once you have an emotion in you, the next question is, what kind of skillful things are you able to do um, to modify that emotion? To reduce that emotion to change that emotions to replace that emotion with another emotion any of these things or all of these things it's like what can you do once the emotions in you is extremely important so um, but but what's the model say the emotion is made up of because now we have several ingredients of which the emotion is composed and uh, I think maybe I started on these last time but in any case uh, I think that I, I said maybe that if you, if you looked at the diagram of this, you would see two boxes, one right next to each other, left, left, to the left and right of each other. And the box on the left is a box that kind of has the ingredients in it that are the, uh, make up the experience of the emotion, the emotion happening in the person. So where and how, uh, do these things happen? First of all, that there's an assumption made, even though you don't feel it subjectively, that there are changes in the brain. We know enough by now, uh, by all kinds of routes of research, that uh, immediately the brain changes. The pattern of ner- nerve cells firing, uh, the networks of, of brain cells that are activated change. So that in the case of um, of uh, Chris, uh, probably that, emotional part of the brain and the limbic system the structures in the limbic system including the amygdala uh, are probably just immediately hyperactivated. Uh, and also the uh, hippocampus is a part of the brain in, in that system right next to the amygdala and that's thought to be a place where a lot of sort of intense memories are stored and so the amygdala has immediate access to a memory that is stored The memory in this case perhaps being the memory of his coach dying in front of him on the practice floor and so uh, that's going so the brain is activated and it's possible that uh, because of what of some research we know but it's too early to say this that it also disrupts uh, what might have been a better uh, functional connection between this limbic emotional part of the brain and what's called the prefrontal cortex, another part of the brain nearby, of course, everything's nearby. The brain isn't such a big place, but uh has a lot, awful lot of synapses and um the prefrontal cortex, which is more about uh about making sense of things and and being locked into goals and uh blocking impulsive action and things like that um and so if the functional connections are broken down. Between the emotional part of the brain and this other part of the brain you can see that the emotional part of the brain kind of takes over the bodily systems um, and that's where in DBT we call it being in emotion mind it might look like that so there's brain changes then there's changes that extend into not just in the brain but outside the brain through the uh, autonomic nervous system which is at the uh, rooted at the base of the brain and extends throughout the body and in particular what we assume was activated here was the fight-flight system the sympathetic nervous system Um, and so that's going on Uh, another ingredient are these other bodily changes that happen some of them rather quickly some of them slower like hormones getting injected into the bloodstream like cortisol a stress hormone would probably have been injected uh there and then it works its way through the system and uh it prepares the organism to cope with stress um, and then there's other other uh hormones and then there's other body changes there's uh, changes in heart rate probably went up pretty quickly and and changes in blood vessels um diameter so that uh, the blood is shunted from some parts of the body away from other parts of the body in this kind of case maybe it was shunted towards the skeletal muscles the peripheral part of the body because you didn't that's where you needed uh, he needed uh, blood to be flowing into his uh, musculature because he it was preparing him for running um, and then there, it might change your temperature to some degree. It might change your metabolism. It might change your immune system. Like I say, it might change the microbiome, the, the biome, the trillions of microorganisms in your gut. Um, it also, uh, in the experience boxes, it changes your sensation. You have a sense. Oh, my God. And so there's that. And then right next to it is this other box. Um, it's going to be the box of uh, emotional expressiveness and uh and and in this box um, it just it, it has several ingredients the words you use to express your emotion the bodily movements uh both actions as well as just nonverbal uh changes in your bodies uh that communicate things and that prepare you for some kind of response uh facial expressions that communicate a lot uh, so words, actions, facial expressions, body language, these things happen. And again, the reason to point all these things out, because, oh my God, I just hate it if I'm sounding tedious, uh, but I absolutely could be, um, is the reason it's helpful to break all of this down, this thing that happens instantaneously, is that any one of these things can be uh, something you can try to do something about. I mean if you do something about your breathing, it can change your whole emotional response. If you do something about the words you use, that can change your emotional response. Um, and if you do something about your urge to act, which I didn't mention, but that's also in the box of experience. you experience an urge automatically. so the urge to run out of the room, uh, if you change what you do about the urge and we're going to get to some of these things. Um, you know, it can change the whole emotional response. And obviously, if you change the interpretation of an emotion uh, and and the prompting event, it can change everything. So, really valuable. And none of this is just something you can casually do. By the way, this is the kind of um, thing that requires a little bit of attention and this and and a disciplined way of writing something out, sketching out the components of your emotional response because and why would you ever do such a thing because you keep being beset by some really painful emotion and you want to figure out can I do something about this and there's certain things you've tried and certain things that come to mind but this is like taking an inventory of all the possible things that you can do so that's um you could see that with chris i mean i'm not going to go back over it cuz i think i've made the points i wanted to make with this model but you know you could you could you could know that chris had a change in his brain that he had a change in his uh, heart rate that he had a change in his breathing and a change in his metabolism he had a, probably had a, uh these other changes in in in, sen- in sensing he had an urge to run and of course he ran uh and then he started banging his head um he, uh, expressed himself in the obvious ways. Um, and then what comes next in this model is that when you've had this instantaneous emotion, uh, you often then come upon a name. It sometimes forms itself in your brain, uh, or if you try to describe what you're feeling, it forms itself and you've got a name like fear, uh, anger, disappointment, heartache, whatever it is. And an important thing here is to not get too hooked on thinking there's a perfect name uh, because actually every single time you have an emotion even if it's an emotion that you think you've had before it isn't the same i mean the body is too changeable it's too complicated the brain itself is too complicated so every time you have an emotion you may be going through some of the same pathways and it may have resemblances but actually You know, technically, you almost need a word for every time you have an emotion. That would be too many millions and millions of words. So we boil it down and we say, oh, there's fear. But, you know, there's fear of all kinds. So fear doesn't quite capture it. So one of the helpful things in Linehan's skills manual, actually, is that after this model is laid out on this certain page, there's pages and pages and pages and pages of uh, emotions. So there's fear. And then when you get to fear, it's going to list other fear words. And one could, in trying to tease something out and figure out what to do about one of one's own emotions, that's somewhat recurrent, is go see and try to find the right terminology for it that is more specific uh, and is more helpful in in reminding you. Um, there's a problem if you if you think you have fear but you actually aren't right like you the 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 physiological changes that have happened are actually the physiological changes let's say of um, of anger or of uh, of surprise and uh but you but you think of it as fear then once you think of it as fear it might be that you're now that in itself becomes a prompting event and sets off the physiology that's closer to fear so now in fact you have produced fear you've constructed fear out of what originally might have been surprise, or disgust or uh, something like that so and now you've got fear to deal with and then you ask later well what was I was really afraid of and maybe you weren't really afraid of anything it's just that fear was a, a final common pathway for you um, so those are the the uh, changes we're talking about and then in the aftermath uh, usually an emotion has an aftermath uh, the way that it was mine was having an aftermath after uh, the ambulance went by today uh, and it was fading um, hard to describe exactly what that aftermath was but it still wasn't gone and then boom there was another prompting event was the guy that was uh, cutting off traffic and trying to get right behind the ambulance um, so uh, then you have after effects and sometimes those after effects of an emotion set the stage or even serve as the next prompting event of that emotion again or the next emotion uh, sometimes you just keep recycling through a similar emotion again and again and again because uh, the after effects of the emotion generate things that set that continue the emotion okay so um i, enc- I encourage you when you get around to it to take this seriously because it's unbelievably helpful there's you know whatever you've tried to do about your emotions the painful emotions the ones that you experience over and over again as really difficult and you're still dealing with them uh, whatever they are um, this would be a way to say wait a minute let me take a step back let me take a more objective look make let me break down this emotion deconstruct this emotion uh, and see if I can figure out other things I might be able to do so I'm just telling you it can be helpful but it really does require some sort of effort going into it okay so take a breath I do tend to get a little breathless when I'm teaching uh, I know that from workshops too. Um I forget about breaks I forget about breathing and things like that so I'm trying to deliberately pause a little bit here because we're shifting gears a little. We're still in the same track, but we're on a different part of it. Um, okay. So now I've talked about understanding emotions objectively with all of their complexity. And, um, you know, and this has included what they do for us, like what are the functions of emotions, which can be helpful to remember because emotions, when they're painful, start to seem useless and even just torture uh there i went over last time what makes it hard to regulate emotions uh six kind of different kinds of things that can make it hard so you can zero in on those if those are the problem uh some myths about emotions i talked about last time now i've talked about the model of emotions now we're moving on to a more hands-on and very practical topic once an emotion has been activated it is in you it is within you it is part of you um what can we do To change the response our emotional response uh, right then and there uh, if possible before it becomes overwhelming because once an emotion arises rises to the level of being overwhelming or extreme actually a lot of these things are just about impossible to do or if you do them they aren't very helpful you actually need a separate set of uh, skills for when things are extremely intense emotions and we actually went over those in a previous podcast, they were the, they called the tip skills, and they're going to come up again. But here's a, now we're moving on to a brilliant contribution, I think, that Linehan has made of this question about what to do in a, about an emotion that's already in you. And it revolves around a scheme that really has three parts. There's three things to do, and they're related to each other. So, uh, again, this is a little complicated. But I'm going to try to break it down as uh, understandably as I can the f- one thing you do and it's the first thing of the three is you check the facts and I'm going to come back to that but essentially you check the facts asking yourself whether the emotion that you're feeling is actually um, in line with is justified with the objective facts of the situation it's not as simple as it sounds but it's really helpful when you have checked the facts, if you decide that, uh, in fact the emotion is justified by the facts, uh, the emotion is a natural consequence of the actual facts of the situation and you want to change the emotion, you probably need to problem solve the facts. So there's sort of step by step, how do you problem solve something that is generating an intense emotion? And then, if you successfully problem solve it, you can change the emotion. I mean, take just a silly example: uh, if you're standing somewhere and somebody is standing on your foot, on the bridge of your foot, and it is painful. Um, now, let's say that your emotion is pain. Though we don't usually call a emo- pain an emotion, but let's analogize it. So you've now got pain. And the fact is somebody is standing on your foot and they're still standing on your foot and you're having pain expressing pain now you ask yourself uh, does this pain uh, is it aligned with the facts is it justified by the facts and then you'd have to say yeah somebody's standing on my foot for goodness sake and so You realize yes and therefore the way to reduce the pain or change the pain is actually to change the facts get that person off your foot and then actually your pain is probably going to go down unless there's been some real damage done right in other words you wouldn't do strategy number two that I'm about to tell you if somebody's on your foot this is the solution Um, get them off your foot Um, if somebody if, if if you have a feeling of guilt uh, because you've done something that is a violation of your own standards. That is, that produces guilt. That's what guilt, you might say, is there for. So the facts, uh, the, the guilt is justified by the facts, by the fact you didn't live up to your standards. Uh, if you, uh, with an example from last week, if you, if I walked into my garage and there was a, a large black bear in there with the bear cub, And it stood on its hind feet up and reared up in front of me uh, I had fear there's no question my fear was justified by the facts of the situation however let me make something clear if the next day I walked in to that same garage and there was no bear the bear was gone and we had even let's say kept the garage door closed there wouldn't be a bear in there Let's say I walk into there and I freak out. I have an intense fear response. That fear response would be understandable because there was a bear there yesterday. And And of course, I have a memory. So my brain generated fear again in response to this. But if you ask the question objectively, is my fear there justified by the facts? Objectively, you'd have to say no. There's nothing there to be afraid of. There was a bear there, but there isn't now. Therefore, uh, the facts uh, do, don't 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 justify the uh, emotion, and therefore we move on to the uh, this other strategy, um, and that's a strategy called acting opposite your emotion, or acting opposite the urge that goes with your emotion. So the urge to run that I had when I encountered the bear. Um, the way to uh, deal with my emotion of fear there is to run run fast get out of there get in a safe place so that's problem-solving but if I was uh, day after day after day I came home and I no longer would enter our garage because of my fear but the fear isn't justified by the facts now the approach to changing my fear is going to be different because it's going to be that we to to change my fear I'm going to go into the garage and stay in the garage and look around in the garage. In other words, and I might still have the urge to run, but I'm going to act opposite my urge to run and I'm going to actually approach the garage and approach where the bear used to be until my brain can learn this new information. So, see, there's check the facts. If the facts tell you that the emotion the painful emotion you're having and wanting to do something about is justified by the facts address the facts problem-solve and in the skills manual there's a nice many step guide standard guide but a lot of people have never been exposed to it to problem-solving I suggest that you look at that if you're trying to problem-solve and then if if you find that the emotion is not in sync with the facts it's out of proportion with the facts or even if it's somewhat in proportion with the facts, it's extreme uh, and painful, then you might move to acting opposite the emotion. Obviously, these are not the only two skills in the world for coping with an emotion in you. You could at that point also be addressing your cognitions, your thoughts, and changing your thoughts might change your emotions. You might do something else to distract yourself. That changes your emotions, but these are two things you can do. That really make a lot of sense that can really make a difference Uh, and you can live your life by approaching things rather than being afraid of them if there's not actually danger there for instance and it can change your whole life so these are the three things let me come back to them so that you get get them further because they sound simpler than they are and well I don't know if they do they sound I mean i've been teaching these for 30 years so they might sound pretty simple to me but they are not simple at all there's a lot of subtle gray zones with with all of this so checking the facts you recognize that you have an emotion and it's something uncomfortable or painful and you decide you'd like to change it do you know reduce it transform it have a different emotion doesn't mean paper it over it doesn't mean suppress it that's sort of the point of the song that I sang at the beginning of the podcast is that you don't change sadness uh, by pushing it uh, underground uh, as a way of changing it. No, there's other ways to change sadness, but that, that doesn't work very well. So checking the facts is to ask the question objectively, is this emotion justified by the facts? Um, so let me just. You know, two podcasts ago, I talked about a different example that's interesting with regard to this. I talked about an example, if you heard it, but if you didn't hear it, I'll give you the very short version right now, that I got angry in response to learning that the manager of my local coffee and bagel shop, where I used to go every day and get my coffee and often get my lunch, that the manager, who I liked very much, had been fired, so I walked in learned that she had been fired and my immediate response I was faced with that I was faced with what seemed like a glum atmosphere everybody was quiet there weren't as many people as usual the staff that were working there was very muted compared to their usual lively selves and uh and there was a guy in there who was being the supervisor and I was angry at him I was angry at the fact that this had happened I instantaneously uh, concluded that she had been fired unjustly since I thought she was so good at what she did and that somehow she was had been betrayed by ma- by the higher management and in a sense I reacted as if I had been betrayed so I had anger now you come to this question let's say I had a lot of that anger And in fact, that anger did go on and on and on, as I told the story, because for six months, I didn't go in there. I just went other places. Fortunately, where I live in our lovely little town of Northampton, there's a million places to go get coffee or to get something to eat. So I would go elsewhere, but it was kind of inconvenient. And every time I walked by this place, my anger would get reignited. Right. So is the anger justified by the facts? yeah it's a little trickier than my than asking this about whether my fear above the bear was justified by the facts which is obvious you know so if if you step back and list the facts that I encountered they would not include the thing that got me most angry Um, if you leave out my assumptions my immediate conclusions and the myths and the judgments the facts were this I learned that this person wasn't there I learned that this person had been fired I did not learn why the person had been fired or how the person had been fired I the facts were that the atmosphere in there was different and the fact was that there was another employee who upon talking to her uh, I found that she was upset about uh, her boss her supervisor being fired uh, and the fact was there was a new supervisor and that actually he treated me a little bit inflexibly compared to the usual flexible style that they had. All of those are facts. Now, the question, did any of these facts objectively justify my anger, especially the intensity and the duration of my anger? I really have to think about it. I mean, and I would have to say, looking at it objectively, which I couldn't have done that first day, no. Um, it wasn't. They do justify surprise as an emotion, disappointment as an emotion, perhaps sadness for losing her as an emotion. And they and you might say it would justify curiosity and interest, like what happened here? But anger? Not really. It's my assumption that justified my anger. So that is an important thing, because if I'm thinking, what do I want to do about this Perpetual anger i'm having about this place i don't like this it's like right next to where i work um but once i thought about that i realized you know the answer to this there's nothing to problem solve i mean i could find out more about what happened but if i want to deal with my anger actually since the facts didn't really set it off it was interpretations and assumptions so i need to figure out what my urge was with my anger well my urge actually was to stay away from there to withdraw from there to give them the cold shoulder so to speak my urge included uh, kind of to look in there and hope that they weren't getting many customers hope they went out of business I mean you know resentment and uh, and uh, revenge kind of urges right so I had to think what are the opposite of these urges that I'm having well I think the opposite would be to actually go in there such as I made me uncomfortable go in there and sit down and just be there just hang out there and see what's going on and allow myself to see the truth of what's happening now what are the what are the current facts how do I line them up with previous facts? And what do and what do I do? And maybe my emotional change. And in fact, it did. I told about that last time, or two times ago, that I went in, I hung out there for 20 minutes or so without ever yet ordering anything, just getting the atmosphere, seeing how people were, seeing how people seemed to feel, um, noticing my own reactions in my body, in my mind. And then I just sort of sat, and then I went and I ordered lunch, my old usual tuna melt, And I got it and I sat there and I ate lunch the the manager the new guy the one who I resented came over after a little bit and said do you have everything you need or something and it was very reasonable I noticed I don't think I would have allowed myself to realize that he was being a reasonable person Um, and I didn't like it as well as as when it was there when it was before but basically my anger really went way down so it was successful okay let me give another example because really i'm teaching you about these three things and they're 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 a little hard to get um maybe they seem again simple but each example brings a different twist so here's another example where my emotion actually uh was justified by the facts um and then i needed to problem solve um so here was the thing without naming or revealing who am i talking about i recently was filled with guilt uh, because there was somebody I promised something to, and I didn't follow through on it. And I, and it, and it went on over time. And I would think of it over and over again. I'd think, gee, I wanna, God, I said I was gonna do that. I should do that. And I kept not doing it. And then I felt guilty. I would get pangs of guilt again and again. And, uh, and, um, and one of the urges that went with that guilt, actually, unfortunately, was, uh, to stay away until I did something about it. So I'd stay away. I wouldn't talk to that person. And then that I felt like that was making things even worse. Um, so um, so I had made a promise. I wasn't following through with the promise. And I was not aligned with my values. Uh, I felt bad about what I was doing. I felt I wasn't living up to the standards of loyalty that I usually like to hold myself to. So was my guilt uh, justified by the facts? And I would have to say yes absolutely this is exactly what causes guilt and along with the guilt uh, I had to then ask uh, you know what can I do about this um you know well fix the facts because it's justified by the facts and the facts are that I'm being a jerk you know <laughs> it was more complicated than that. I'm not going to go into it there were reasons I hadn't followed through on this that are emotional but they still interfered and and really it still left me feeling guilty um, and so then I thought, well, the answer to this is is to follow the urge, not to go the opposite of the urge, but the urge included to, to repair, to stay out of touch until I repaired it. And so then I decided, okay, it's going to be a little inconvenient, but let me jump on this this weekend and do this and follow through with this promise, even though it's a delayed response. And I did. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this person's going to really hate me. And, but I followed through on it. I, I let this person know that I had done it. Uh, I sent something to her that was part of it. I wrote an apology to her. She got back to me. She was thrilled to receive what I had done. And she immediately accepted the apology faster than I would have given myself, uh, uh, that kind of gracious response. But, um you know and then my guilt was way down Um, it's amazing you know you can do something about uh, about about your emotion that way um let's take an example that's more subtle you'd say you're a person that's you're the other side of this equation you're the person to whom someone has made a promise and doesn't follow through And it turns out that you're also a person who was raised a certain way. And the way you were raised included that you weren't supposed to get angry. And you were basically shaped in your early family environment to feel uncomfortable with anger and to feel that there's something wrong with you if you're expressing anger, that you're kind of bitchy and and mean, and so you really don't express anger. And you've learned to do that. And now let's say this person promises you something again and again and doesn't follow through again and again, and, and you don't have it, and you're left disappointed, uh, which is understandable, but actually you also have the momentary experience of annoyance or anger, which you don't like. You're uncomfortable with it. And because you're uncomfortable with it, you feel you're doing something wrong, and you quickly move on to feeling ashamed. All right, so now you're stuck with the feeling of shame. You didn't get what you wanted, and you're also feeling ashamed because you had the emotion of annoyance. So, by the way, this is an example where the primary emotion of the prompting event, the prompting event being the failure for this person to give you the gift they said they would give you, the prompting event uh, prompted anger uh, that was, and the anger itself was justified. But then your main experience is what's called a secondary emotion, shame it's called secondary because the shame um, was is uh, a response to your initial emo- your initial emotion anger it's not a response to the prompting event that set off anger <laughs> so the question is if you want to do something about this shame or this kind of shame um, you ask yourself do you check the facts is the shame Justified by the facts in this situation, where somebody promised you something and it wasn't delivered, and I think you'd have to say, no, it, it's not justified by those facts. It's justified by the fact that you had anger, uh, this internal experience, but it's not justified by the situation. So, um, if you were going to do something about your shame, um, you don't go approach the situation. Uh, you approach the internal experience of anger because it is justified based on your history that you had, uh, had anger is, it again, it's only based on your history. Your anger is actually not dangerous to anybody, especially in that way. And so, uh, you might decide, I'm, uh, I'm gonna deal with, uh, uh, saying that my, the prompting event for my shame is my anger then you have to ask the question is my shame justified by the facts of my anger and even though it's understandable and it's been there a long time and you were trained to think that way you have to ask yourself objectively um am i really doing something bad uh, that i experienced a little bit of anger and objectively your anger has not been dangerous to anybody you're not doing anything bad in that respect so you would probably try to act opposite your urge to be ashamed and to hide and to cower uh, and instead go at the anger experience the anger experience the anger again and again so you would act opposite the urge to run away or hide uh, with shame and you would move towards the prompting event which is anger in this case so this is how it can get confusing you really have to get clear when you outline your own emotional responses okay um, we're not going to get too much further than this uh, but I did want to get across check the facts uh, problem-solve and uh, and act opposite the urge and there are some steps to acting opposite the urge I'll just close by telling you what those are um, because it's pretty systematic and and then it becomes improv uh, improvisational but this is really a step-by-step thing and if you do all the steps it can help you by the way this is the same as doing the procedure in therapy of exposure first you might identify and name your emotion uh, that you want to reduce maybe maybe it's shame maybe it's anger whatever Second, you ask yourself, uh, you check the facts. So was the emotion justified by the facts? And let's say that you figure out that the emotion is not justified by the facts. The emotion has its own life, um, either disproportionate to the facts, not really driven by the facts themselves. So you decide, I'm going to do act opposite the urge. So the next step, step three, figure out, that the action urge what the what the action urge is that goes with the emotion so as fear the act is action is often to run away or to um, yeah to move away from the thing you're afraid of uh, shame the action urge is often to hide uh, not expose yourself uh, anger the action urge is often to strike out at somebody now next step once you've identified your specific urge now, figure out the exact opposite of the urge. What would it really be to go against this urge, and therefore to fundamentally go against this emotion? And this will be, this has to be answered. There's no formulaic answer to this. Uh, you have to look uh, situation by situation. So, for instance, the opposite of the urge to run under the pressure of fear might be to approach rather than to run. But how to do that depends on the circumstance. The opposite to the urge to hide under the pressure of shame might be to go against hiding and rather to expose yourself and open up, right? Um, the opposite of the urge to strike someone under the pressure of anger might be to do the opposite of striking somebody, uh which might be to just gently withdraw, back off, to not strike them and treat them decently, uh or even approach in a in a kind manner, uh really trying to change your emotion. Uh now, next step once you've figured out what the opposite of the urge is that you're going to try to do again and again, you got to do it all the way. You, if you partially uh, approach or partially expose or partially be kind to someone else, it allows for the preservation of uh, of acting on the urge, partially acting on the urge, which is a way to perpetuate the problematic emotion. And so really if you really want to change your emotion it can feel a little strange you're going against the grain you're going against what you in a way what your mind tells you to do but you have to approach you have to sense get back on the horse that you're afraid of riding uh, even though you're afraid and that to, to, to be done enough over and over again uh, allows you to change your emotional response to a situation it's a fantastic skill like I say it's the core maneuver in the treatment uh procedure called exposure in therapy um, and we'll probably come back to say something about it next time because we're going to leave off here but we just to summarize we, we have gone over the model and now we've gone over the uh, ways to cope with having an emotion that you have repeatedly or chronically and you want to reduce or change Is to check the facts and then consider whether to problem-solve the factual situation or whether to address your emotion by acting opposite the urge of what that emotion is I hope it's all clear Um, this little part of teaching DBT skills um, requires some effort um, and attention so that's why I'm giving it a little extra time I'm going to do one more week on the emotion regulation skills at which point we'll be done with them and then uh and the next week that I am doing this is not next week because I'm doing something else next Wednesday but it'll be uh, the Wednesday uh, following that which I think is uh the 12th I think it's the 12th of December okay hope you're all well and uh, I'll talk to you next time bye